Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests unto God and his father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. And all, and they which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall will because of him. Even so. Amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. He loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Brother Reuben reminded us of that astounding and unfathomable love this morning that moved him to sacrifice his son for our sake. Jesus says, or it says in Ephesians 5, that he washed us with the washing of the water by the word that he might present to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that he could present it holy and without blemish to himself. Now, um, I have a sermon here that I'd like to preach, but I was wondering about the appropriateness of that after I heard the children's Sunday school lesson, and I think what maybe we could do is just close the book and dismiss the service if we could only just do that which is right and good and it's all done and we're satisfied and we just know how to live and i suppose that is a is a good reminder for us but sometimes the question is well how shall we live and how shall we do that which is right and good so i suppose that's the reason for the sermon this morning so the last time i preached I spoke to you, <clears throat> I spoke to you about a biblical response to racism. I hope that was a pertinent subject. I'd like to think about another current ism that we face. So this morning I'd like to spend the time to think about a biblical response to feminism. Now maybe you haven't given, ever given that much thought, but if you, um, have a little bit of an inkling of what the world is throwing at you and trying to influence you by that you know that one of the things that it wants you to do is buy into their view of how the world is supposed to be run, um, not by men, but by women, ultimately. And that's um, maybe perhaps a little bit what feminism is. In the history of the world, throughout, Women have been oppressed. They have, and it's unfortunate. I don't think there's much argument about that. Women in many societies have been, and some in some societies, they still are today. They're regarded as property, not much more than slaves. In ancient times, and even up to recent times, the wealth and power of a man was demonstrated by how many wives he had. Now Gideon, it says, had many wives, and I don't know how many it he had he had 70 sons so he had to have many wives to have that many sons david king david had at least 6 rehoboam had 18 
But as far as I know, in all of biblical and maybe even historical records, Solomon stands the highest with his 700 wives and 300 mistresses. It seems that marriage was kind of a token of goodwill between nations. And so for a powerful king to marry the daughter or the princess of another powerful neighboring king or sheik or whatever you want to title the neighboring fellow over here who had his little political entity, now you, you, uh, you form the political alliance by marrying a relative or daughter or princess. And so this kind of a marriage was not just common in the ancient world, but it was common up into the last century. Did you know that even since the Second World War, there was arranged marriages between uh, monarchs of one country over to a uh, monarchy of another to forge uh, political alliances? And so um, that's one of the things that as people of God, we do not espouse. Um, in English common law, a married woman had no legal rights as an individual. She was born with rights. They recognized that a woman is born with rights. But when she became married, then her rights became covered by her husband's rights. They call that coverture. Now, we're, we're familiar with that term if we stop and think about it. We even sang a song this morning with that word in it where we sang, I will abide in thy dwelling place forever, and um, I will thee trust and ere thy covert claim. All right? Because God covers us. Well, an English woman's rights were covered by her husband's rights as soon as she was married. They call that coverture. So they, we, we see these aberrations, and we see this... Um, abuse of power and so on in the history of the world today yet. The question that many folks ask is, well, how shall we respond to that? How are we going to make this right? And the answer that many will propose to you is, of course, feminism. Now, the women's suffrage movement that uh, happened here in the early 1900s was the movement that was the ultimate um I guess there was a constitutional amendment made. I even forget. I think so. I should know this without even looking. But the women's suffrage movement gave um, the women the right to vote in this country. And it was a women, it was a movement against the tradition, that old English tradition that a woman doesn't have rights except through her husband. Now, for those who claim to have no political say and will abstain from a political voice, we may think that this doesn't have a lot to do with us, all right? But it, it, it confronts us here in, the, in what happened since then. So there was that initial, what they call, wave of feminism, which was the women's suffrage movement. And then if you want to think of it in waves, is how it's usually described, that the second wave was the wave where women strove for equality and the right to work and so on. Think of Rosie the Riveter. You have seen the, the posters of her with her arm curled up like a man because she was riveting airplanes in the Second World War era. That's the second wave. But then since then, there have been different waves of 
feminism. Uh, one was reacting against the sexual harassment in the workplace. Think of the Me Too movement. Um, another wave is promoting the LGBTQ agenda. Think of um, homosexuality and transsexualism and this idea that there is a non-binary sexuality. In other words, you can be neither male or female if you feel like it. Um, and then another wave could possibly be described as a uh, promoting sexual dominance over a man and so on. So those, that's kind of what we're talking about when we're talking about feminism. And some of this is outright propaganda, and some of this takes a more um, innocuous and innocent-sounding stance. But there is an outright propaganda against men. But some of the more innocent-sounding ones are the things like the Berenstain Bears, where Papa Bear is the great big clumsy oaf every time he is. And Mama Bear is there rolling her eyes and picking up the pieces. All right? That's feminist. Manhood is under siege in our culture today. You may have seen the slogan that the future is female. Hillary Clinton recently popularized it, but she borrowed it from a 1970s lesbian, lesbian whose name was Lisa Cohen. And this is what she said. This is, this is where this, the future is feminist, the future is female comes from. This is what this woman said. If we are to have a future, it must be female. Because the rule of men, patriarchy, has just about devastated life on this beautiful little planet. The essence and the spirit of the future must be female. So the phrase becomes not just a slogan, but a spell for the good of us all. All right, that's feminism. Now, I don't know what you think of that. I find a statement like that quite incoherent because I can't understand for one second how that time can be masculine or feminine and for sure not time that isn't even realized yet. I have no idea how that something like that could be female. So I find that um, nonsensical and incoherent, but... What I, what I see in all of this, and I don't know if you'd agree with me or not, is that it seems to me that the goal of feminism is not just equality. It may perhaps have been at the initial um, movement and so on. But I think it has turned into the, the goal of dominating the one who was allegedly the oppressor before. It seems that they think that men being dominated now will somehow pay for women having been dominated in the past. And that sounds to me like a form of revenge. But I think you know what happens when you start revenging things. Revenge only get, begets revenge. You, We've all heard of the Hatfields and the McCoys and how that they had these feuds and so on, right? That's, that's what happens when you revenge. It only escalates, all right? So a movement like this can go in no good direction. But it's easy for people to get onto this feminist bandwagon because many of the allegations that they bring against society are, in fact, true. 
But I want to say as the people of God that we do not get on this bandwagon, that God has a design for men and women. There's a biblical response, and I think we have to understand that two wrongs will never make a right. Culture will tell us that either you are a feminist, one who promotes women's rights, or you are a misogynist, one who is prejudiced against women, and there's no middle ground. And I suppose that for much of society, that that's right. But I want to say that for the people of God, there is another category, and that is that of God's way. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Is this God's way of relating to this feminist question. But first I want to lay a couple of foundational concepts. And I, I, I'm reiterating um, some of the concepts that I gave you the last time when we talked about racism. First of all, is that we as God's people have to make a direct and distinct and conscious and intentional effort not to allow the world to shape us. Now, Brother Steve on Wednesday evening reminded us of Romans 12, 1 and 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Somehow I'm a little mixed up there. All right, you get the idea. To be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're not going to allow the world to shape us and to mold us. We're going to resist it. And that's actually, if we stop and think about it, it's a tough command. It's, it's hard to do. It sounds noble, and it is noble, but in reality, it's often really hard. People naturally conform themselves to their peers. It's natural to do. We've often seen that. We, we call that peer pressure, and as, as we grow older, we often almost um, snicker at our young people's uh, propensity of adjusting the things that they want to do because that's what everybody else is doing, but it's not just um, limited to young people. And I think that us as old people who are tempted to snicker had better watch ourselves because the pressure to conform ourselves to the culture around us is no less for an older person than a young person, perhaps in a different era, I mean, in a different um, area of life, a different arena of life. But the pressure is there. Think about how that people like to structure their churches. I'm talking about this is this is the way that um, the world wants to put us into its mold, even as church leadership and so on. Think about how churches are structured in the past, in a political setting of monarchy. The churches were often very structured and they would have, think of the Roman Catholic Church, they have a pope on top and then they have the cardinals and the bishops and the priests and finally there's the people, just like the nations that they lived in, all right? Now today we live in a democracy where everyone is supposed to have a voice and 
you, you just can guess how people want to structure their churches, and that is that we have a democracy and we just vote for the things that we want to do, and popular vote carries. One's as aberrant as the other. People naturally conform themselves to the culture that's around them. But just as the principles of Scripture stood against the culture and still stand against the culture where women are oppressed, so the principles of Scripture stand against a modern reaction to that oppression. So that's the first thing I want you to understand is that we do not conform ourselves to the way of the world's thinking. The people of the kingdom of God who are living by the principles of the kingdom of God don't think like and they don't use the same tactics as the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of God operates on the principles of truth and of love and of peace and of sacrifice. There is no coercion. There is no falsehood. There is no manipulating. There is no... Uh, political rallying and protesting and there is no warfare. Rather, the principle that the kingdom of God operates on is like the candle on a bushel and it gives light in the middle of the darkness and people can see it and are drawn to it. They're not ever coerced into it. And secondly is that the people of the kingdom of God who are living by the principles of the kingdom of God don't expect big waves of cultural or societal reform. There is an expectation, there is a realization that God's people will be different. You're a chosen generation, Peter writes in chapter 2, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. They expect that they will be marginalized and they will be ostracized, that they are a remnant. There is the expectation of persecution by that old dragon, the devil. John says, Jesus said this in John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. Because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But there is the expectation and there is the hope that this light will spread that this light will shine. And there is the idea given to us that a small seed will grow. Luke 13, what is the kingdom of God like? And whereunto shall I resemble it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and cast into his garden. And it grew and waxed into a great tree, and the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. And he said again, whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like a leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. And so we don't expect to go, come crashing in and, and cover society with a big change and a big splash, but we expect the kingdom of God to move and to grow just like a little tiny seed becomes a tree and like leaven 
in a loaf of bread. Perhaps it's a little bit like that little rock that was hewn out of the mountain and hurled at the feet of that statue that Daniel saw. It ground that statue to powder and it grew and became a mountain that covered the earth. All right. So that's kind of that's kind of what we're up against. So what I would like to do is, is give you uh, some biblical principles that, that guide us in our response to feminism. The first is the command to love, and the second is a command of order. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this command to love, but I would like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. It's this passage that I already cited at the beginning. Ephesians chapter 5, I want to start reading in verse um, 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and they shall be joined, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. The idea that I would like to highlight here is that husbands are to love their wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now there is quite a narrow principle, quite a narrow application here in this passage. And that is the marriage relationship and the church's relationship to Christ. But the principle here is quite broad. There's a narrow, there's two applications here, but the principle is broad, and that is that love demands sacrifice. Love demands sacrifice. You cannot, you cannot love without sacrifice. Perhaps, just perhaps you can sacrifice without love. I'm not sure, but you cannot love without sacrifice. So that's the first principle that I want us to, to have in mind, but the, the second principle is this command of order turn to first timothy chapter 2 now we are thinking about the christian's response to the world's feminist movement and this is what the Bible teaches. He's talking about how men 
are supposed to, how that we're supposed to pray and it talks about how that men are supposed to pray everywhere lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting and then verse 9 in like manner also the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array but which becometh women professing godliness with good works let the women learn in silence with all subjection but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Now God's command here, this this uh, passage that we hear, have here is based on the created order of things. Talks about Adam was first formed and then Eve. And so I want to think about this created order a little bit. So for that, we want to uh, go back to Genesis chapter 2. So, so turn there with me, please. I want to read uh, some of these verses. And this, this passage was already mentioned in our um, Sunday school. And... Jay responded to the question that was asked uh, by citing 1 Corinthians 7. And I would like to respond to the question that was asked and just, just give a little bit more of a um, depth to that question about a man being alone. And that is that it doesn't say that it's not good for a man. In other words, it's not necessarily a general statement, but it in this passage, it's a specific statement. It's not good that the man should be alone. So maybe that kind of helps the conversation that we had in Sunday school. I, I don't know. But that's not really what I want here. All right, start reading in verse 4. These are the generations of the heaven and of the earth. Comment that I want to make here. Um, I should have made it before I started reading. A comment that I want to make is that we should read this not only as historical, but I want us to read this as richly symbolic as well as historical. Now, it's a variant account of the creation. It's another account of creation, and it's not the same as chapter 1. But I think they can be reconciled. But here, the it, it emphasizes and it highlights the fact that man needed help. That the man needed help. And I believe all men need help. All right. These are the generations of the heaven and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was not a man to till the ground. And there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Notice the sequence as we go through this passage. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in, in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight. And good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. 
And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. And the name of the first is Pison, which, and that which is, that is it which compasseth the whole land of Hevela, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good, and there is delium and onyx stone. And the name of the second river is the Gihon, and the same is that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hittico, and that which is, goeth toward the east of Assyria, and the fourth river is Euphrates. Now the Hittico river is the Tigris, I believe. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die." And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all the cattle and to all the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to, f to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and, they shall, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. All right, this is a little bit of a different account of chapter 1. Um, now, there are some translations that will say that, like in verse 9, and out of the ground the Lord God had made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight. And it says, and some translations will give it that, um, in verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field. I don't know if that's a good way to reconcile this with chapter 1 or not. Or maybe that's adding a word that shouldn't be there. I, I don't know how to read the Hebrew, so I can't tell you. Right, but that's, that's not necessarily what I'm after here. After the creation of the plants and the herbs of the field, there was a striking absence of a caretaker it's, it's noted that there was not a man to till the earth. And so God created this caretaker, but it wasn't until Eve was created that God's creation was complete. I think we understand that. Now the words help meet can also be translated as a help suitable or a helper comparable. Now here's something that I, I think we should understand. We have to understand if we're supposed to understand a biblical response to feminism. And that is when it talks about being a help. This is not to disparage the one who is the help. We often think of help as being second class. All right, Many of us are kind of out of fix when our furnace breaks. And so we're out of fix to begin with. And then we will quietly groan within ourselves if the helper shows up and not the mechanic that we were hoping for. Right? We don't want to see the helper because... We regard him as second class. But that's not what's going on here. 
Did you know that there's places in the scripture where God is described as our help? God is in the midst of her. Psalm 46, verse 5. She shall not be moved. God shall help her. And that right early. And we sing that old hymn. Oh God, our help. In ages past and our hope for years to come. So help in this sense is not second class. It's not something that's just appended onto. And it's just a tag along. So if it's the woman who is the help. Or if it's God who is the help, we have to understand that the idea here is is that there's an indication of a need on the part of the one that is being helped. And needing help is a position of weakness. See, 1 Corinthians 11 teaches us that woman was created on on account of the man, not vice versa. We could say that woman was created... Because man needed help. She, she complements and she completes him. Let me read you a couple of verses in 1 Corinthians 11. The man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man... Even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. So the woman was created for the man by God. And neither of them we know can survive without the other. So it's not so much that one is above the other, but that one completes the other. And in recognition of this, we wear, our our sisters wear a head covering and our men don't. It's in recognition of this very principle. It's actually kind of hard for me to tell if the basic, maybe that's, you could describe that as a a description of the male, or the complementary, being the female, gets the most credit for the wholeness of the relationship. Well, the fact of the matter is to try to think about who gets the most credit for the wholeness of the relationship is not a good way to think about it. To need help is a position of weakness. And to be the weaker vessel, as Peter describes the woman, is also a position of weakness. But it's together that the relationship between the two work. So it's this created order. And I'm back in 1 Timothy Two now that Paul gives as the first reason for the order in the church, in, in the home and in the church. And that is that the women are supposed to be quiet. And then there's a created difference. So there's a created order and there's a created difference. Maybe I should just read that verse in 2 Timothy again. All right, I mean, 1 Timothy 2. All right, so this is the created order. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And the second reason that Paul says that a woman isn't supposed to teach or to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence, is because Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. So there's a created difference here that I should that we should think about. So there's basically 
two things that I'd like to highlight here. One is the physiological, that's how we look and function and so on. The other is the psychological difference. Now, physiologi physiologically speaking, I'm speaking as a general sense. Men are on average, on average, this is irrefutable, I'm just talking averages. Men are larger and stronger than women. Men have a leaner muscle to fat ratio. Did you know that when women swim, they bob on top of the water, and if there is a lean man swims, he sinks to the water. It's just, it's a fact. They have different levels of certain hormones. But we can even speak about, we don't have to generalize some of this stuff. We can speak on very certain terms, as far as I know. And I suppose as far as you know, there has never been one man in the history of the world who has ever had a baby. So there's these physiological differences. But there's also psychological differences. And here again, I'm speaking in general terms. Men are usually more prone to take risks and they tend to be more aggressive and women tend to be more empathetic. Women are usually more resistant to change. If you like that, you think he's stalwart. And if you don't like that, you claim him, you, you say he's stubborn. But, and then it seems that women tend to be more agreeable than men. And that's the nice way to put it. And the not so nice way to put that is that the women are more gullible than men. All right. What, what happens is our strong points always come with a countering weak point, And that's why God made both. Now, it's this weakness that women have that God created women with is the reason that women are not supposed to teach or usurp authority over the man in the church. Now, these, these highlights that I was talking about, of the difference between men and women, psychologically and physically, logic, physiologically, are also borne out in Scripture. We, we can observe them. But they're, they're also borne out in, in Scripture. In, in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, he says, quit you like men, be strong. Now, what does that mean? Well, to quit you like men, you can translate also, you can also translate that as to be manly. And that's given to everybody. Well, so what does that mean? It's referring to that traditional male quality of being brave and strong. That's what it means to quit you like men. All right. So that's, that's, uh, that's the one thing. But when Paul wanted to describe his dealings with the Thessalonian church as gentle, he said, that he was among them as a nurse with her child. All right? So, so we see this difference in how men and women are put together. And so, in this passage, that Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. The issue at hand is that Eve was more easily deceived and it's this natural agreeableness that women have that Paul gives as the reason that she should not be preaching and teaching. The proclamation of truth is best left to that half of the church that is more stubborn. It's just how it is. The proclamation of truth is best left to that half of the church that isn't so easily persuaded. So it's these created differences. So we have the 
created order. Adam was first formed. And we have the created difference. Adam was not deceived. That establishes the order in the home and in the church. But I want you to think about this, that each is incomplete without the other. To bring the two together is God's design for marriage. And to have both function in their place is the best way for a marriage, for a church. And I'm going to propose to you for a society to flourish and to function. Marriage is impossible without both, without both men and women. That's what marriage is. Marriage is impossible without man and woman. Marriage is not any two, but it's specifically a man and a woman. So marriage is impossible without both man and women. The, the, the church is incomplete without both. While God has placed man in authority and in the preaching and the teaching positions, the church would not be healthy. There would be so many needs unmet. And in fact, the church would die if it would not be for the women. And humanity is incomplete without both. And in a very practical sense, it would become extinct in a hundred years or so without both. And here's, uh, here's just a, an opinion I have is that it is rebelling against God's order that drives the interest in cloning and all of those kinds of things. It's because that man rebels against this created order and wants to upset that. But when both give of their uniqueness to a marriage or a church or a society, that marriage and that church and that society benefits and functions. So scriptures teach both an equality and a difference. Now, when we are doing math, we take five and we take three from five and we see the difference as being two. And so when you think of a difference being that way, then there's no way to reconcile difference and equality. So that's not a good illustration of what we're talking about. Don't think of the difference as we do in math, where we subtract one number from the other and determine the difference. A difference like that describes inequality. The difference that we're talking about is describing about how they are not the same. They're not identical. But there is equality in terms of value but there is difference in terms of function. And unless your mind is closed to the truth, I think it's about as easy to understand that as it is to walk and chew gum at the same time. It's just so easy. We can easily understand that, but so many people stumble right here, and I think it's because of the God of this world has blinded their eyes. We put ourselves in a quandary that we don't have to when we try to figure out how there can be equality when there is difference. Well, we're just not thinking of the terms right. See, it's a little bit like trying to figure out whether the motor or the transmission of your car is more important. And as far as I know, your car is along the road with a rag hanging in the window, if not both are working. And so, so both 
men and women are equally important, equally value, equally valuable. There is a difference in function. The motor turns the transmission, turns the wheels. There's just a, a difference in function. So, likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, and being and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Such a beautiful description of both that difference and that equality. Galatians 3, verse 28. There is neither Greek nor Jew. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ. So let me try to put this together for you. I gave you two principles to guide us. That's the principle of love and the principle of order. It seems to me that order without love is domination. But love without order is confusion. And so we need the principle of love. We need the principle of order. The, the, the order is that, well, I won't reiterate that. That's what I've been talking about. There's a really strange thing that's happening in the culture today. And that is that it professes to be data and science driven. But it seems it can't see some of the most obvious things about us. Maybe it's, maybe it's that you have to have a really, really good education. And then you miss it. I'm not sure. But I want to propose to you that it's not education. Rather, it's indoctrination by the world's philosophy that causes you to miss that difference and that beauty and that harmony that exists between men and women working together. So this teaching is both scriptural and it's reflected in the natural world. It's written in the pages of scripture. It's validated by our observation of the natural world around us. We see this. And to refuse that and to not be able to see that I think is a result of having been indoctrinated by the philosophy of the world. And I think we can only conclude that that is an anti-God agenda. So don't allow the world to mold your thinking when it comes to feminism. God is good. His design is good. And His creation is good. And we do best to submit ourselves to his goodness. Let's kneel for prayer.